in John called Seeing Jesus, that you may know, believe, and have life in his name. And as we come to Easter this year, if you've been journeying with us over the last few months, you would have noticed that, you would have known that, and we've been making our way through John's gospel. And so today, as we reach Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at that account in John's gospel, and we're going to see how John calls us to see Jesus in the resurrection, and what that has meant to mean for us. John's account is recorded in four different stories. Right, in John chapter 20. And we're going to look at them one by one. And God is going to say something significant, I believe, out of each of those stories this morning. So let's take a moment. Let's go into, into John chapter 20. If you want to page along in your own Bibles, you're very welcome to do that. We'll be up on the screen. The first story is the empty tomb that we discover from verses 1 to 10. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he also saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And he saw and believed. They did not yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they had been staying. All right, that's our first story. It's the first story that John records of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's about an empty tomb. And it serves two primary functions in John's resurrection narrative. The first is that it's important that it establishes the fact of the empty tomb. And then John uses it to introduce an idea that's going to run through his narrative. And that's the idea of seeing and believing. So let's pause for a moment and consider the significance and the importance. Why is it important that we see this tomb that's empty? John's recorded it for us, and he's given us some interesting details, and he does that to establish a few things. Do you notice when we come to the tomb, the stone has been rolled away, right? That's fairly obvious. All of us are quite familiar with that idea. Then there's strips of linen that the disciples see that were used to wrap Jesus' body. Those strips are lying over there, and then there was a cloth that was used to wrap his head, and that's lying in a separate place. Why does John record those details for us? They're important because they attest for him to the fact of the resurrection as opposed to the theft of Jesus' body. The other Gospels record for us the measures that the Jewish leaders went through because they were concerned that the disciples were going to come and steal Jesus' body and then claim that he had been resurrected and so perpetuate this cult that they believed had started. And so they went through a lot of work. They made sure there was a very heavy stone that was over the entrance to the tomb that no one could just roll aside by themselves. They posted guards outside the tomb who would be there for three days to make sure that nothing happened. And in John's record, you notice the stone has been rolled away, the guards aren't mentioned, and the linen that was wrapped around Jesus is still lying in the tomb. Now, this is important because if you were going to smuggle a body out of a particularly conspicuous tomb, you wouldn't take the time to unwrap the decaying body from the linen it had been wrapped in and then carry out the decaying body in your arms 
right? That just wouldn't happen. You would get in and out as quickly as possible. So John records the linen that was lying there so that we would recognize that Jesus really did rise from the dead. It's the evidence of the fact that Jesus himself rose from the dead with some kind of divine assistance, moved a stone that had sealed the tomb. That's the first reason John writes this account for us. And the second part of the story introduces something that John is going to build all the way through his resurrection narrative, and it's the connection between seeing and believing. So Peter and John, and John is here called the other disciple. I feel like my, there we go, are we okay? Right? There we go. They both run to the tomb after they've heard Mary's testimony, but they run out of worry because Luke tells us when Mary tells them this, they, they actually don't believe her. And so they're like, well, we better go check for ourselves. We need to go find out what's going on. So they run off to the tomb, and they're not quite sure what to expect. And when they reach the tomb, John sees that it's empty. He sees the stone has been removed. The grave clothes are lying there. And it says that and he believes. What he has now seen has confirmed for him that which Jesus told him beforehand would happen. And if you have spent any time in the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus tells his disciples that this will happen a number of different times. I want you to remember this idea. John sees and it causes him to believe because John is going to make a big deal of this through his narrative and particularly as we get to the end. And then he gives us this last or these last two verses that are a little bit like a, a narrator's commentary, um, to, just with a bit of hindsight as a bit of a counterpoint. He says that although John had seen the empty tomb and he'd come to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, neither he nor Peter yet recognized that this had been prophesied in Scripture and was necessary and had to happen. In other words, he had yet to f- appreciate the full theological implications of what he just witnessed. That understanding would come to them later. So John just lets us know that as he's writing this gospel some years later. So that's the first story. The disciples, they get to the tomb, and then they go back to where the other disciples are are gathering, and Mary stays at the tomb. And so John picks up with Mary, who's been waiting outside the tomb. It says from verse 11, Now Mary stood outside the tomb, and she was crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then she clearly runs to him and hugs him. And Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the second part of John's resurrection narrative that he records for us. And he begins to build on the theme that he introduced in the previous story. Do you remember when John got to the tomb and he looked in, all he saw was an empty tomb with some linen lying around. And now Mary goes and she looks in and she doesn't just see an empty tomb and some clothes, but she sees two angels there. She's given a greater degree of revelation, and it's going to point her to a deeper belief in Jesus and his resurrection. 
And as she begins to talk to these angels, she turns around and she sees a man that she assumes is a gardener. And at this point, there's no recognition that this man is Jesus. And so she asks after Jesus, still not understanding that he's risen from the dead. And Jesus calls out to her. And at the mention of her name from his lips, recognition comes to her. And she sees the risen Lord and she believes. Now, friends, this moment is actually much more significant and much more dramatic than John portrays it here. It's a little bit understated, actually, in his accounts. Because this moment is the culmination of a series of events that John has recorded to bear witness to the identity of Jesus. For those of you who have journeyed with us from the beginning of this series, you will remember back in the beginning that I told you in John chapter 1, that in John's gospel, there are only seven miracle stories. In the other gospels, there are a lot more miracle stories. In John, there are only seven. And John keeps calling the miracles signs rather than miracles. And the reason he does that is because the miracles, the signs are there to point you towards Jesus. They're road markers that say Jesus is over here. They're like big billboards that highlight the truth about who Jesus really is and therefore what we should do about it. So each miracle has a point. And it's to point you towards Jesus. And so in John chapter 2, you see Jesus turn water into wine. And it says after this first sign, his disciples put their faith in him. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus heals an official son. And so the whole official's household believes in Jesus and who he is. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And that leads to a confrontation with the Pharisees who refuse to believe who Jesus is being revealed to be. And as we continue in John's gospel, we're going to see that Jesus performs more miracles in John chapter 6, in John chapter 9, in John chapter 11, his penultimate miracle where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And each of these signs is like a bigger and bigger billboard that points to the reality of who Jesus is. So when Jesus appears to Mary now in John chapter 20, and when he appears later to the disciples, this is actually John recording for us the seventh and most significant miracle, the seventh and most significant sign in his gospel. And he actually tells us this in John chapter 2, right back in the beginning of his gospel, after the, the water being turned into wine at the wedding, after the cleansing of the temple, then Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees, and they say to him in, chap, in chapter 2 verse 18, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see what Jesus is doing here? The resurrection is the greatest sign to who Jesus really is. It is a sign that goes above and beyond every other miracle. It's way more significant than water getting turned into wine. It's greater than healing people who are sick. It's greater than feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. It's greater even than bringing a dead person back from the grave because Lazarus would ultimately die again. And it's one thing to have the power in you to bring someone else back to life. It's a whole other thing to die yourself and still have the power within you to raise yourself back to life. In his own resurrection, Jesus overcomes the power of death permanently. And it's not just for himself, but it becomes available to all who will believe in him. The resurrection is the greatest testament to who Jesus really is. 
So the question for us this morning is what will you do with it? What will you do about the resurrection? Will you dispute it? Will you argue with Jesus like the Pharisees did? Will you refuse to believe because you know in your heart that to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and that he really is God and that he really does command the lordship of your life means it's too high a price for you to pay at the moment. And you don't know if you're willing to surrender your life to him. Or will you choose to believe as Mary did? Have you chosen to believe already? Will you see the resurrection for what it is, the greatest sign that God could give to who he is and that you find life in his name and in the promises that he has for us. This is the choice that the resurrection places before us today. And I'm going to leave you to contemplate that choice for a little bit because John's story continues. But like John does in his fourth story, we're going to come back to this question. We're going to ask it again. Will you believe in Jesus because of what he has shown you? So as we get to the third story, I want to say to you, if, if you're feeling this question in your heart, you feel like you really need to wrestle with this question, you have my permission to tune me out for the next 10 minutes. All right? You don't need to listen to me. You just sit with the Lord and allow him to, to talk to you as you ask that question. Because this, this next story is actually for those of us who are here and you already identify as Christian. You, you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Well, then this story is for you. So let's dig in together. This is where Jesus appears to his disciples. John 20 from 19 to 23. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This third story comes to us and it's in two parts. And the first part is a continuation of this theme that John has been building of of seeing and of believing. And the second part forms a bridge from when what happens when you believe to what then needs to happen after you've believed. So as happened to Mary now, all the disciples, they get to bear witness. Bar Thomas, by the way, who we discovered just now is, is not with them in this case. They get to see and they get to experience Jesus in the flesh. And he appears to them in their hiding. And they were afraid of being persecuted by the Jews. So they're all hiding away in a house locked up. They're not going outside. It's like COVID lockdown all over again. And as Jesus appears, he speaks peace over them, comforting them in their distress. And then he shows them his hands. You see, see where the nails went through my hand. Look at my side where they pierced me with a spear. And in his appearance, he inspires in them faith and true belief. And they finally understand what he said way back in chapter 2, that he would rise from the dead again after three days. And all that which had previously seemed beyond belief, because it was just outside the realm of possibility, has been rendered true by the fact of his appearance. And so they rejoice. Because Jesus is not dead. The one in whom they had placed all of their hope has conquered the greatest threat that any man has ever faced. And he has returned from the grave victorious. And so he really must be who he said he was. The son of man is not dead. He's defeated death itself. It's the greatest enemy and the disciples rejoice. They are overjoyed. Because that which seemed impossible 
and inconceivable has happened. Friends, that's not where the story ends, though. But it is where the story gets good, right? Because for three years, as Jesus has been with his disciples, he's been steadily training them. He's been giving them increasing responsibility, beginning to send them out, teaching and training them, so that they would be ready for this moment. When Jesus takes the baton and passes it over. See, the age of the incarnate Messiah is now coming to an end, but the age of the church is about to be born. And so on Friday, we looked at Jesus' last words that he spoke from the cross. And John wrote in chapter 19 of his gospel, the previous chapter, and says, Jesus knew that his mission was finished. And so he had a drink of sour wine, and then he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, by the time Jesus died on the cross, he had completed what the Father had required of him. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's from Friday's message. Good job. His work was completed. His mission was finished. But God's plan wasn't. It was now our turn to continue the mission that Jesus had begun, to announce the good news of repentance from sins and life in the name of Jesus. And these words that Jesus uses here with his disciples are, are for me, they're some of the most beautiful words in John's gospel. I think they're so powerful. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. The disciples are given the same mission. They are called to pursue it in the same manner, to give to it the same level of devotion that Jesus did. And then because that's just not possible without the consistent infilling of the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Spirit. Receive the same empowering that I've received. Know the same intimacy with the Father that I have had. Know the same level of comfort in your struggles and hardships that I have known. Know the same power of God to minister to those who are lost and broken and hurting that I have known. And then he makes that mission explicit. He says, pronounce forgiveness and judgments just as I have done. And this is not some kind of you know, God-like status that Jesus confers on the 12, but rather it's, it's the natural consequence of going out and preaching the gospel. As you preach the gospel to those who will receive it, release the forgiveness that I would give to them. And to those who would reject the gospel, will they stand condemned by their own rejection? So friends, here lies the challenge for us. Jesus told his disciples that as the Father had sent him, so now he was sending them. To be a Christian is not a passive enterprise. Christian is not an identifier that you tick on a form when the government does its census once every 10 years. It's not a mental assent to a set of propositions that I I agree there was a guy called Jesus and he probably lived about 2,000 years ago and and I've heard that he, he probably did die and he probably did rise from there and I agree that those things are true. That's not what being a Christian is. It's not a cultural practice because you have grown up in a certain home and your family took you to church when you were young and now you kind of continue to go to church because it's the thing that you do. It's definitely not about coming to church, whether you do that once a week or or once a month or whether you come twice a year. To be a Christian is to be deeply submitted to the will of the Father so that you live your life so that others might know Jesus and find life in the Savior of the world. 
It's to go into a lost and unbelieving world and to call them to believe in the one true God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I want to speak directly perhaps to some of you who might be here today because today is Easter. And you tend to come to church on, on Easter and Christmas. I want to say, firstly, I'm so glad that you're here. It's really wonderful to have you. But if you are, are coming to church or if you're watching church online, I want to I just let you know that's not what Christianity is all about. There is so much more to being a Christian than attending church every now and again or watching it online. God has revealed himself to you in Jesus so that you would believe, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah that you need and that the world needs, that you would believe that he is the Son of God and that only by believing in him will you be able to find life in his name. Life, friends, is found as we actively follow Jesus today and tomorrow and every day that follows on. Life is found in a daily lived relationship with Jesus. As you seek to follow him, to be obedient to him, as you recognize that that he really is God and therefore he requires something of you that you need to give back to him, that's going to cause you to dig deeper into him, to rely on him. As you go through the stuff that's going to come your way in your life, it's going to cause you to dig deeper into Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it is my gravest concern that some of you might settle for a form of religion that denies the power of God. And that one day you will come and stand before Jesus and he will hold you accountable for your life and you're going to be found wanting because you've thought that to be a Christian is to come to church every now and again. And so it's my plea to you this morning that if that is where you find yourself and if that is how you understand your Christianity, there is a call from God for you to consider that more deeply this morning. To consider the revelation that Jesus has given you in the resurrection and to really ask, what does it mean for me in my life? And what am I going to do about knowing that Jesus has shown himself to be God? And if you're asking that question, we're going to create some space later here this morning if you're with us in person, and we're going to do some ministry for any who would want it. If you want to chat, if you want to pray, we're going to have a space for you to do that. If you're watching online, please feel free to get in touch with the church office, and we'd love to help you and journey with you. For the majority of you, though, you really do love the Lord, and you do live in this daily relationship with Him. So my my challenge to you and to us this morning as we read this text from John is, how do you see yourself as sent into those places that you have in your life? How are you sent into your home? How has God sent you into your family? How has He sent you into your friendship circles? How has He sent you into your workplace? How has He sent you into the community in which you live? so that others would see Jesus and be able to know him and believe in him and have life in his name. Okay, let's go to the final story in John's resurrection narrative. So if you tune me out for the last 10 minutes, you're welcome to come back now, right? This story is for those of you who might struggle to believe. You've heard me kind of prattling on about Jesus and you're like, Brad, that's a cool story. I'm just not convinced I'm ready to swallow that pill yet. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone in asking questions. You're not alone in wrestling. 
This is what happens to Thomas. And so Jesus chooses to appear to Thomas. He's one of the 12. Let's read it together. John chapter 20 from 24 to 29. Now Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, he was one of the 12. And he was, with the, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, Tom, look, we, we saw the Lord. And he says, listen, guys. Unless I see for myself the nail marks in his hand, and I put my fingers into those holes, and unless I take my hand and I stick it into his side where they stabbed him with a spear, I'm not going to believe. And so a week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. And the doors were locked, and Jesus came and suddenly stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, hey, Tom, put your finger here, see my hands, and reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So if you, some of you out there, some of you here today, are, some of you, if you're like me and you're just a little bit skeptical, this story is for us, Right? And I, re- I want to say, I think in the world we live in today, there's a there's good reason to have a healthy amount of skepticism in our lives. There's a lot of trash that people perpetuate as truth. And it's helpful to be a little bit skeptical of those things sometimes. So I want to look at the story. I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions this morning. If you want to chat later, you're welcome to. But I want to just share with you and point out some of the things that we see Jesus doing as he encounters Thomas, who's carrying those same questions in his heart. I want you to notice when Jesus appears, he speaks peace over the disciples because they're still freaking out a little bit about the persecution that they're going to endure. And then what does he do? Turns immediately to Thomas. But Thomas hasn't yet met the resurrected Jesus. He hasn't yet had the chance to say with him, you know, Jesus, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this idea of resurrection because he hasn't seen him. But Jesus already knows the doubts that exist in Thomas's heart. And so he turns to Thomas. He says, Tom, here I am. I know you're struggling. Come touch. Come see. Put your hand here. And it's this beautiful picture of the graciousness of God as Jesus accommodates himself to Thomas's nature. He subjects himself. He brings himself down to Thomas's level so that Thomas's doubts can be assuaged and so that he too could reach this full state of belief that the other disciples are in. And you'll note that he does. He cries out, my Lord and my God. But then I want you to notice how Jesus responds to that proclamation. He says, Tom, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in this comment, Jesus creates two categories of people who believed. And and we're supposed to view them in contrast to those who don't yet believe. And he says, there are some of you who have seen. And because you have seen, you have now believed. But there will be those who will not see and yet will believe. And so in doing this, he brings to a climax this theme that John has begun to weave through the telling of the story of seeing and believing and how those two relate to each other. And he says there was a set of people for the 12, they were privileged enough to see Jesus. And because they saw Jesus, they were able to believe that he really had risen from the dead. And Paul tells us that group gets a bit bigger and reaches about 500 people who get to see the resurrected Jesus And believe that he is truly risen from the dead. But there are a lot more people who are not going to see Jesus. 
and are yet going to be able to believe. And Jesus says there is a blessing that waits for those people. So if you're sitting here this morning, if you're watching today online, and you're waiting for God to meet you in a dramatic way, if you're like, Lord, if you really exist, then show me. That might happen. God did that for Saul in quite a dramatic way. God often does that for those who are Muslim today, interestingly enough. Many Muslims come to faith because Jesus appears to them in a dream. And just like Saul says, hey, I'm here. He's done it for some people in our church where God has appeared in a dramatic and an unusual way and called them back to salvation. But I want to say to you, the majority of people don't experience Jesus like that. They tend to be the exception rather than the rule. But Jesus extends that invite to you in any case. He says, will you believe this morning, today, without seeing? Will you believe on the basis of the signs themselves? Will you believe on the basis, on the evidence of what I have left for you to see? Will you acknowledge that the resurrection is the greatest testament to the glory of God and that no one else could do that except God himself? Will you wait outside and choose not to find the light? It's the choice that Jesus would, would leave to you. And he invites you to come in. So let's bring this to a close this morning. I'm going to ask Shirley and the team to come and join me on stage now, if you guys would. And we're going to close by reading the last two verses that John records for us in his gospel. And this, you, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you would have heard us say this over and over again because this is the theme of John's whole gospel. It's the reason that everything he's written has been recorded for us. John writes and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples and they are not recorded in this book. But these things that have been recorded, they have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The seven miracles that we told you about, culminating in the resurrection, they have been written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, you will find life in his name. It's the reason God left us the Scriptures. Because he desperately desires for people to find life in his name and to believe that Jesus really is who he said he is. So that's the challenge that Jesus would leave you with this morning as we celebrate his resurrection. Will you believe that he is who he said he was? Shirley and the team are going to lead us in a song where we celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done. And after we've done that, we're going to create a space where we can do some ministry together for those of you who would like that. So thanks so much, Shirley. Over to you.